what's for dinner? The question we all face. Hey everybody, it's Nina. I've been a chef for the past 12 years and I still lose all creativity when it comes to that question. Join me in exploring what some guests plan to cook for dinner. With Thanksgiving being this week, I wanted to make sure we included Indigenous voices. The theme of this week is food and clinket. Clinket is a tribe of Alaska Native peoples residing in Southeast Alaska. In this episode, we have someone dear to my heart when I lived in Sitka, Alaska. Robbie Littlefield is a Clinket language teacher at University of Alaska. She is a cultural bearer and subsistence harvester. Welcome, Robbie. It's so good to see you and hear you. I'm so thankful that you're joining us. Robbie here is one of the most food advocates we have in Sitka. Her and her whole family have kept the Clinket culture alive, not just through language, but also through food. They founded their own Dog Point Culture Camp. Robbie, can you talk about what inspired your family? Be happy to. I grew up in Fairbanks, the interior of Alaska, and I grew up on a homestead. So my dad built his own house. So I was used to living with outhouses and carrying your own water and just enjoying life, doing hard, difficult chores. My husband was a a Tlingit person of Alaska, Native American of Alaska, and his family always goes and spends the whole summer at their fish camp, gathering foods processing them, putting them up, preserving them. And then they take the food to town and share with the elders and other extended family members. So that became a really big part of my lifestyle from the 1970s on till, well, till today. And that's what inspired me to learn from my in-laws about how to put up food and take care of natural food from the land. I was reading one of the articles that You said food is not just food. And I love that quote. What is food to you? Food is a spiritual thing. Food brings you together with your ancestors. It connects you to the land. So it goes both directions. It's a physical connection and it's a spiritual connection. Our ancestors lived off the land. They taught their descendants how to do that. They also taught them how to respect the land and take care of the harvest from the land and not to waste it. That was a huge critical value that the Tlingit people and Alaska Natives all across the state, that's really important in their lifestyle. Do not waste, don't take more than you can use. Don't let it sit around and get sour unless you intend to do that because there is a way to make fermented foods. And just make sure that if you can't eat it all, uh, give it to someone else and share And um, don't waste. This is why I wanted to talk about what it means to be Native in the United States during the time of the holidays. So that's why I wanted to introduce a voice like yours. What does the holidays, what does Thanksgiving mean to you and your family? Thank you for asking. Coming together as a family and an extended family means that you can share memories of your elders, your ancestors, and get connected again with the descendants so that you know who you're related to. And when we do that, a big part of it is our food. 
We bring food that our ancestors taught us how to take care of and to prepare. And these recipes aren't written in books. They're handed down through the generations. And if you don't bring them out, make the foods every once in a while and, and bring them out, they these recipes will get lost. But even in today's world, we're in the 21st century, and it's really hard to have a meal that is only traditional food. So we spread it out over family meals over the winter, over the summer and the year, and we don't have everything at one meal. I could talk about what some of the things that we do harvest and share, because we never know who's going to bring what to the family gathering, and we celebrate food that comes from the land. Well, let me just talk about some of the things that kind of parallel what you eat in in a Western American table for Thanksgiving. Um, We have some similarities. I was trying to think of all the things that we like to serve and we would if we had time and enough resources. But one of the things that we can replace the cranberry sauce with is to make a sauce with crab apples and cranberries. And so we pick the cranberries in the muskeg. And then the crab apples are also sour. And when you grind them up in your handy dandy electric grinder, it looks like cranberry sauce. And it's a sour and it has a different flavor, of course. But throw some hand-picked cranberries from the muskeg in there too. And then we ha- for, for a Thanksgiving dinner, we might have deer meat. It might be roast. It might be hamburger. It might be baked. It might be sliced and fried. With mushrooms, we we like to pick the mushrooms, although those we don't preserve, we eat them right away. We have a dessert that we like to make with berries. We put all the berries that we've been picked all summer, we put them in a big bowl. It might be blueberries, huckleberries, salmon berries. We make sure we pick some gray currants to put into this dish and some Jacob berries. And then we slice up a few bananas and put a can of fruit cocktail in there, mix it all up. And it's like fruit cobbler, but it's not cooked. And it's a favorite dessert. They used to put seal oil in this berry dish. Um, We haven't done that as a family for a while, mainly because we are a little short on seal oil. But some of our younger generation has been kind of, well, they haven't been trained properly and they don't appreciate seal oil in their berries. But our elders would do that because It's a very rich food, high energy food. We might have a sliced seagull egg. Well, we harvest the seagull's eggs in the spring and you can boil them and make boiled eggs and then pickle the eggs. They last a long time. And then when you serve them, you can slice them up and they're a lot bigger than the chicken eggs you get from the store. And they have a little bit of a fishy flavor because that's all the seagull eats is fish. It's very interesting. Yes. So pickled eggs. And uh, we get our oil, which is a, a source of rich nutrition from the seal. And sometimes we use the seal oil to preserve things. Long ago, they would have a lot of seal oil and they would preserve the berries in the seal oil. And we have done that in the past. And the berries last for many months especially if you keep it in the refrigerator or cold and like outside or something. You can also preserve chunks of deer meat and seal meat and any other kind of meat by immersing it in seal oil. It's a preservative and it lasts for many months without a refrigerator or salt. 
And sometimes we have the great uh, pleasure of getting moose meat from our relatives from the interior. And that's often brought out as a roast at a special occasion like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And we all share the bounty from the northern communities. And we trade. We do a lot of food trading. So in Sitka, we get herring eggs. We're one of the last places where herring eggs are abundant enough to harvest. Our particular family often supplies herring eggs to many families across Alaska that my um, my husband's family is related to. Ruby and Anchorage and Ketchikan, all those places that don't get herring eggs, we like to trade. And they send us some wonderful, delicious things like quail muktuk. And so when we get that, we're really stingy with it. And we just bring out a little bit to share at gatherings. All these foods can be preserved in the freezer. Many of them can be preserved in jars, vacuum sealed or, you know, cooked sealed jars. We also have hooligan fish. They sometimes call it the candlefish because it's so oily. Long ago, they would render the hooligan fish and get the oil out of it and save it for all of these purposes for preservation. And then sometimes they would age it. So it had a fermented flavor. And many of our elders love fermented hooligan oil. Just delicious. I learned how to eat it myself by slowly adapting my palate to understand it and and to accept it as a nutritious food. And now I like it. A little story my mother-in-law told me was she's from the interior and they didn't have hooligan in the interior. But when she uh, moved to Sitka and married my father-in-law, he was Shingit. And his mother cured her of, she was dying from a disease or from a, a bad cold. And she literally was wasting away because she couldn't hold any food down. And um, the doctor told her mother-in-law that, that she was not going to make it. So her mother-in-law pulled out her big jar of hooligan grease. They call it grease, but it's really oil. And started spoon feeding her because she couldn't hold any food down except for hooligan oil. And so for a week, she made her recovery with only the nutrition of hooligan oil, and she was able to survive. But hooligan oil is just so rich. You don't need much to uh, get well with. I like to share that story. I don't get a chance to, to mention it very often. But hooligan, if it's fermented, so if you take antibiotics in today's world, it kills all of the good bacteria in your intestine, along with every other bacteria in your system, it kills everything off. And then you don't have the bacteria in your digestion that helps you to process foods naturally the right way. But fermented hooligan and fermented seal oil has those nutritious and supportive bacterias that help your own stomach to digest foods. And so you can fix your round of antibiotics by taking fermented foods and that's something that people don't know or understand that, you know, that is a problem when you lose your natural bacteria in your stomach, in your guts. When I was in sick, I didn't hear about hooligan. We don't get hooligan here. It only goes, they, that little fish only goes to certain streams. And we have to trade with the other villages to get these foods. And they trade with us back and forth. And so foods and furs and tools and traditional clothing, they're all kind of traded around. And we kind of uh, don't use the American 
money system that much. We trade with what's really important to us. We do also get another plant that is we use in many of our dishes. Um, it's a black, we call it black seaweed. Chakask is the name of it in Tlingit. And we harvest it at certain times in the summer, dry it, and crumble it or grind it, and um, save it for year-long use. You can put it in soups. You can sprinkle it on your baked salmon. You can eat it straight. It's like black popcorn, crunchy and salty. There's another seaweed that doesn't grow in Sitka Sound. It's called red seaweed or kach. And that grows in different places close to the ocean where the, the wind and the waves beat the rocks. And this seaweed likes to live there. And Yakutat, I have a relative from Yakutat that I trade herring eggs for them. And they send me a big bag of dried red seaweed. This exchange of foods, this exchange of resources is very traditional. And when we have a big meal and share things, we're pulling our ancestors into our lives in that during that dinner. We're connecting with the land and we're reaching out to other communities and we get to say, oh, this came from Yakutat. Oh, this came from Ketchikan. It's just a way to connect with everybody. Um, another thing that we harvest are shellfish, but our tradition is we don't harvest clams and cockles in the summer. The old tradition was that if you harvest in the summer, there's a possibility of a red tide, which is called PSP, something like that, paralytic shellfish poisoning. And you can't really tell. They had tricks for testing a clam. They would take a piece of clam, a raw clam, and put it inside their lip. And if their lip started to go numb, that meant that that it probably had the paralytic shellfish poisoning in it. It comes from the water when it's warm, when it's really warm out, this algae is called red tide. It blooms and the clams and the cockles absorb that while they're eating, while they're filtering the water and it can kill people and it doesn't take much to cause death. So we're careful with that. However, if you harvest in the winter, when it's cold out, that's when you can trust it and uh, so we harvest in the winter and then freeze our clams and cockles for the rest of the year use. Clam chowder, a big favorite. We do have such a thing as clinket potatoes. These potatoes were DNA tested and we discovered through the science and the scientists that our potatoes come from Peru, not Europe. Isn't that amazing? That's so amazing. So that just kind of highlights how we trade up and down the coast for thousands of years and share foods and share resources. You were asking earlier, what was my favorite quick dish to serve? And this is an all-time favorite fish dip. <laughs> so we we have we harvest our salmon and our halibut and our lingcod. We either freeze it or we jar it. If it's jarred, we take the lid off after, you know, vacuum sealed and cooked and all that. It lasts for years, years, literally years in a jar. Dump it out in a bowl, put some mayonnaise in there, mash it up, put some chopped onions in there, maybe some seasoning or some dill. It doesn't take much to make a very delicious dip for crackers or chips, but our favorite meal 
is sandwiches with the fish dip inside. And it's quick. You can prepare it, take it on you on your trip to go harvesting in the boat. And it's a quick, easy meal. Thank you. Do you have a dish that changed your life? Well, maybe. I like food. <laughs> so anything is is uh, interesting to me. And there was one dish that I was afraid to eat. And I forcefully changed my life by learning how to eat something that I had no taste for. It's fermented salmon eggs. So the process for making these eggs you save the eggs from the dog salmon, or they call it the chum salmon. And you cook a little bit of it, and the rest of it, you wash in running water, and then you put it in a jar, and you mix the cooked eggs with it. And it's not cooked very much, just enough to change the color of the eggs. I think it was just cosmetic to have the, the dish look different. So you let it sit for two weeks in a house temperature environment do not put a lid on it because the bad bacteria will grow if it's closed so you can put some fabric on it to keep any flies from trying to get in there or if you do put a lid on it, it has to be very loose and it has to be able to breathe kind of like you want sourdough to breathe so after two weeks of letting that sit you're going to stir it and let it sit for another week and at that time, it's considered finished. And they will take that and put it into smaller jars and freeze it to keep it for special occasions to share with people who know how to eat it. And that's what my husband always said. If you don't like it, just say, I don't know how to eat it. And that's respectful because a lot of people harvest these foods and they do know how to eat it. And if you say, I don't like it or I'm not going to try it, that's like you're disrespecting them. And in our culture, when a harvested food is wasted or disrespected with words, we believe that there will be bad luck come upon the hunter or the harvester because everybody has to speak gently about the food we harvest. A life has been given for us to survive on that food and we need to speak gently of it. And he said, well, if you don't want to try it, you can say, I haven't learned how to eat that yet. To answer your question, this changed my life a little bit. I realized that I can learn to eat other ethnic foods. My language teacher made this dish regularly, and I used to bring her great quantities of dog salmon eggs for her and her family and her sisters to have fermented salmon eggs. And so she told me how to do it. She supervised me doing it. And when I took it home, I was still nervous. And so I started with one fermented egg. <laughs> and I ate that one fermented egg. And I survived. <laughs> and so then the next day, I took two eggs. And then the next day, three eggs. So I tried to teach myself to learn how to eat some food that I didn't it's like lutefisk. I mean, it's like a scary food when you smell it and see it. But there are people who have learned how to eat it. And it's a respected and valued traditional food from your ancestors. So I think that's probably the food that I would look at to having taught me that I can do it. And not to be afraid of it. 
if it was done properly, it's not going to hurt you. That's the trick, though. You have to eat these dishes that have been prepared traditionally and be careful to prepare it exactly the way your elders prepared it because that's when you get into trouble. If you change the recipe or you make it, like if you made fermented fish eggs in a metal bowl, that would be bad. You have to make it in a wooden container or a very new plastic container that doesn't have any scratches on it because the wrong bacteria gets caught in the scratches of a plastic bowl. And the metal bowl causes the eggs to ferment in the wrong way. So you have to do it exactly how your elders told you to do it to be safe. Thank you so much for sharing that. What a fabulous journey. I love that uh, shift of pedagogy and just eating. I was looking at the Alaska Native Knowledge Network and looking at the music and the clinket lullabies. Some lullabies have some food ingrained into it. Yeah. Well, there's one favorite. It's a favorite of the local kids and even the the school district uses these in their music department. The one that talks about food is the grandfather says, come here, little boys. Come here. There's dog salmon swimming in the stream. You can spear one. And so grandfather's telling the little babies, I mean, little kids, three-year-old, five-year-old in the song, you can spear one and feed your family. Of course, by the time they're six or seven, they're going to want to do it, actually do it, rather than hear about it in a song. Uh, music is so powerful. And that was the first one where I saw food in lullabies. So what's for dinner tonight? I'm just now eating deer burger with cheese melted on top of it. And also some pickled kelp called geesh or bull kelp. Uh, they're really big stemmed seaweed and you slice it up really thin and pickle it it's really delicious and crumbled seaweed on top of the burger and because I have to avoid starches I'm borderline diabetic so I don't eat bread on the bun I don't eat a bun I just eat the burger and any vegetables that we've harvested that they bring out like the kelp and that's it for me anyway Spanish we say buen provecho is there a clinket way of saying, like, bon appetit? Several ways. So you could say, it's good food. It's good food. Or eat it up. Eat it up. Or, oh, it tastes good to me. And just little things like that. But it's not really one one way to say it. Good comments. Well, it's also so ingrained in culture. Sharing is such a, a normal way of, of being. I could tell you a story that might fit into food. Sure. So our elder, Paul Jackson, told us a story about why we put food in the fire for our ancestors. He said that there was a man who fell into a coma. And this was like a thousand years ago. This is a really old story. And his family thought he had died. The old tradition in our communities were that we cremated our people who passed away. But before you cremate someone, you dress them in the clan treasures, the dance shirts, the hats. You, they, they get to have all of the ancestors' artwork surrounds them for two, three, four days. And they sing goodbye songs. 
they take turns sitting with the person that's passed away. And they had started to build the cremation fire. And it was getting pretty hot. And he woke up and they asked him, where did you go? Because they knew he went somewhere. He wasn't in his body. And he said, I found myself walking in a forest. I didn't know where I was. I found a lake and there was people on the other side of the lake. And those people were talking and and visiting each other. And I yelled and they couldn't hear me. I got tired yelling at them. So I sat down. Well, he fell asleep, leaning up against a stump. So that you know how you snore a little bit when you're you're sort of like your windpipes like pinched. So so he started snoring in his sleep. And those people over the cross, the other side of this big lake could hear him. And they sent someone over in a canoe to pick him up. When they brought him back to the village, he was looking at the people that were there. He thought that they looked so familiar, but he couldn't place who they were. But then he saw a group of people on the outskirts of the village that looked like they were starving. They were so thin and so pale. So he asked his guide, why is it that you people look healthy and the people in the same village over there look starving? Because that is not the culture of Tlingit people. If one person is starving, everybody's starving. They help each other. They feed each other. They take care of each other. He will explain to him that those people have been forgotten. Their descendants have not remembered them. They don't know who they are anymore. And after he had explained that, the man said that he wanted to stay in that village. He really liked it there. But his guide said, no, you have to go back. We need you to tell your family not to forget us and to feed us and to remember us. You put a piece of food in the fire, and as it turns to smoke, we will all be able to share in that food. And we know that you've remembered us. When you call out our name, you will say, Tommy, this goes to Tommy's mouth. Charlie, and so then it goes to Uncle Charlie. And so as long as you call out your ancestors, it means you've remembered them and they will be in a healthy condition in the spirit world. And so today that's what we do. When we have the ceremonies, we try to take one of the, take a little tiny bite of each of the foods that is being served to the people in the 21st century. And we take it out in a plate and we put it in the fire. And before we take it out of the building, we call out all the ancestor names we can remember. And we still do that. In fact, we just did that Saturday night. We had a memorial for two young women that had passed away. And we were remembering them and all the rest of our ancestors. Thank you, Robbie, for sharing such a compelling cultural story and for everything you've shared with us tonight. Food is not just food. This episode is brought to you by Advertly, your user-friendly advertising platform. Thanks for listening. Peace and chicka